Hey there, here and now, anytime listener. If you like this show, we'd love it if you followed us or subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. Also, I know you hear this a lot, but if you can leave a rating or review while you're at it, we would really appreciate it. It just takes a second and it helps us a lot. Of course, you can also tell your friends to subscribe. That helps too. And thanks. Now here's the show. Cartels normally do not target Americans. They understand how important Americans are to a local economy. So from the beginning, there was a sense that something probably went really wrong. The latest on the Americans kidnapped after crossing the Mexican border. Tuesday, March 7th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we hear from someone in the Sierra Nevadas digging out from 12 feet of snow, and the former CEO of BET reflects on a career in entertainment. But first, there's news on the four Americans who were kidnapped after crossing the Mexican border from Texas last week. Two have been found dead according to Mexican and American officials, and the other two were reportedly found alive. The Americans apparently came to the border city of Matamoros for health care, but found themselves under fire and were then taken away in someone else's vehicle. A Mexican citizen who was passing by was also killed in the attack. Celeste Headley spoke around noon Eastern today with Alfredo Corchado, Mexico City Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News. Can you give us the latest information that we have gotten from either Mexican or U.S. authorities? Well, this is a lot of uh, breaking details, uh, developing news. But what we understand is that the four Americans were found at a medical clinic in Matamoros, um, allegedly left there by uh, perhaps the cartel members. Two of them are dead. One is severely injured and the other one is alive. Uh, the last thing we, we received with, uh, was that there was an ambulance there to to pick them up, presumably to cross them across the border into into the United States. Do we have any information on why these Americans were targeted? What we know and, and what we've been told the last couple of days by, by U.S. and Mexican authorities is that uh, a Mexican cartel likely mistook them for Haitian drug smugglers. Uh, cartels normally do not target Americans. They understand how important Americans are to a local economy, to the tourism industry. So from the beginning, there was a sense that, you know, something probably went really wrong. And we're, we're just learning details that uh, uh, perhaps they were going after smugglers. This is an area that's hotly uh, disputed between factions of the, of the Gulf cartel. It's, uh, it's been extremely violent, uh, I would say, in the last uh, 10, 12, 15 years in, in Mexico. And unfortunately, what, what this shows is really what everyday Mexicans uh, face uh, in, in this border region, up to Malipas, the, the state uh, where Matamoros and, and Reynosa are located. That cartel may be, be very active there, but we're not sure if they're responsible for this kidnapping, I understand. The FBI was offering a $50,000 reward for the return of the American victims and the arrest of the perpetrators. Have authorities told us anything about the search for who was responsible? There was a press conference this afternoon. They're, they said they, they will 
be offering more details about that. But authorities from both sides of the border are telling me that uh, they are looking for members of the Gulf Cartel in in the city of Matamoros. Uh, that's their number one priority right now is to try to find them. And we, we've seen this in the past. So there's a high-profile incidents involving Americans. Uh, you would have the, the, the Mexican government try to quell down by going after the, the perpetrators and trying to you know make it seem like they've been able to find who's responsible. Uh, sadly, usually you, you have other leaders who will promptly take over. Yeah, um, the Americans who were kidnapped, as we understand, were in Mexico for health care. Is it common for Americans to travel over the border, especially in that area, for, for the purpose it's of extreme, getting It's extremely common. I mean, uh, you have Americans coming into Mexico all the time, either for uh, medicine, prescription medicine that's much, much cheaper than in the U.S., or procedures, in this case, a, a, a tummy tuck, as, as we have, have learned. It couldn't come at a worse time for Mexico. I mean... Medical tourism is becoming increasingly popular. It's just days before um, spring break when you have all these Texas students going into Mexico. Uh, so it's uh, not a good time for Mexico right now. Yeah, and the U.S. State Department has advised Americans to extreme, you know, use extreme caution when traveling to this particular state or even avoid the trip altogether. But not just for healthcare, it's quite normal, is it not, for people to, especially for those who have family in these Mexican border towns, to go back and forth across the border? Every day you have thousands of um, Americans uh, crisscrossing into Mexico, um, uh, Mexicans into the United States because of family, because of work, because of school. And it's also a tough time because uh, it, it comes as uh, two Republicans are, have introduced legislation that would give President uh, Biden the authority to activate the use of uh, U.S. military against these cartels mm-hmm. in Mexico. Uh, again, not a good time for Mexico. Alfredo Cochada is Mexico City Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News. Alfredo, thank you so much. Thank you, Celeste. Coming up, it's still snowing in the Sierra Nevadas after weeks of storms have piled on more than 12 feet of snow in some areas. We'll hear from one woman in California who's digging out. Stick around. could be in the forecast for parts of California that have weathered an onslaught of snowstorms lately, and that could mean flooding in the Sierra foothills, where the power is still out for many people after an unprecedented 48 feet of snow so far this winter. Elena Poplin lives in Georgetown, California, population about 3,000, and she told Deepa Fernandez that she just got her power back on after nearly a week getting by without it. We have a small generator that can power a couple appliances, like a refrigerator and a TV, that sort of thing. And then our heat is a wood stove. Do many people, your neighbors, your friends, do they have wood stoves and and generators? Um, I would say some of them do. Um, My parents who live next door to us, they do not have a wood stove. So they had to come and stay with us because they didn't have heat. 
Mm, we reached you while you were at work last week. Can you just describe how you've been getting to work and getting food with all the snow? So my work was actually without power a couple of days, so we had to be closed. And then my husband was temporarily laid off from his job because of the snow. A lot of the times if you don't have good tires on your truck or four-wheel drive, chains, you're not getting out because if the county doesn't come and plow your road, you have to take care of that. And if you don't have a tractor or you don't have chains for your tractor, you just kind of are Mm -hmm. stuck. Sometimes you can hitch a ride out to the main road and get into town and hope somebody picks you up and brings you back up the hill up Wentworth Springs, the road that gets plowed. And I'm guessing, Elena, living where you live, you're probably used to snow in winter. Have you seen this much snow? No, absolutely not. Last year, we had a big snowstorm come through and we were snowed in and we were without power for a long time, but it hasn't continuously snowed like this in the 33 years that I've lived here. Now, Georgetown is a historic landmark. It was a gold rush camp in the 1800s. Can you tell us more about the community who lives there and what it's like? A lot of the community is older folks. I work in a historical building at the Corner Kitchen on Main Street, Georgetown. A lot of the buildings are very, very old. They they date back to the gold rush time. So it's like a old timey town. We're really close. Like we have a Facebook page where we can all connect with each other. So a lot of people have reached out on that to get help with digging out their driveways and helping repairs on collapsed structures and getting gas. So I'm wondering like how you, how you all are feeling right now because there's also more rain coming. We're hearing that we should expect another atmospheric river this weekend. Uh, People trying to get snow off their roofs so the rain doesn't add to the weight? Yeah, I I haven't heard so many people worried about their roofs collapsing or structures, chicken coops, carports, garages. So yeah, we after we dug out our driveway, we had to get up on the roof and remove the snow off of our roof. And it's just been nonstop work. And I've also heard there's a danger of trees falling. Oh, yeah. The neighbor to my right, a huge ponderosa pine fell on his house. And so they had to get their chainsaws out and get the tree off their roof and get a tarp up. And right down the street from me, a lady had a tree fall on her daughter's bedroom. And they had to call 911 and have their daughter taken to the hospital while we were all snowed in. So it's it's scary. It's a lot. And was your neighbor's daughter in her room when the tree fell? Is she doing okay? The She was in her room when the tree fell. Um, from what I know is that she is doing okay. Stay safe there. Alana Poplin is in Georgetown, California. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. After the break, Celeste speaks with the longtime head of BET who's out with a new memoir about battling sexism in the entertainment industry and what she learned from Aretha Franklin. Stick around.
As the CEO of BET, or Black Entertainment Television, from 2005 to 2018, Deborah Lee was one of the most powerful women in the entertainment industry. She also served as the organization's chief operating officer for 10 years and was BET's first general counsel. But as she recalls in her new memoir, for much of her career, Deborah Lee had to deal with expectations that she be a good girl. As a black woman, she was often invisible to her male colleagues who chafed at her promotions, and Lee's relationship with BET founder Robert Johnson was a complicated one, incorporating both mentorship and sexual harassment. Deborah Lee's memoir is I Am Deborah Lee, and she joins me now to talk about it. Deborah, welcome to Here and Now. Thank you, Celeste. I'm so honored to be with you today. I have to say there's so many times relatable moments Mm -hmm. for me in your memoir where it seems like despite the successes you had, you felt unseen, even as a, mm-hmm. a successful executive. And even when you were seen and able to speak, you felt unheard. And I That's wonder, true. to what extent is this book an attempt to remedy that, to be heard? Well, a lot of it is my attempt to be heard. I'm a lawyer by training, so I like writing. I like editing. I like writing again. (laughs) So some of these stories, I didn't want to risk telling in isolation. I'm just not that kind of person. I wasn't that much of a public figure to talk about the abortion I had before law school, to talk about my miscarriage while I was working at BET, to talk about my relationship with Bob Johnson. But once I left BET and saw how these stories are relatable to other women and came, you know, within the good times. I was able to meet uh, Michael Jackson and had a reception for him at my house. Uh, I talk about my relationship with Aretha Franklin and difficult decisions like whether to let Chris Brown perform at the BET Awards. So I wanted to write a business book and give advice But I thought the best way to do that was to tell stories. There's a lot in this book, and you've just proven that. So let me try and pick apart a few of these threads. And let me start with Aretha Franklin, because in the same way that you offer advice in this book, some of it very practical, like here's how you ask for a raise. It sounds as though Aretha Franklin was a mentor to you and gave you good advice. What did she teach you? R-E-S-P-E-C-T is what she taught me. And she demanded that as a female entertainer. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, take F-T-C-T. She taught me how to ask for what you wanted, even if it was, you know, above what someone was willing to give you. And I just uh, learned a lot from her in terms of identity and, and how to be a female leader, but also be a woman, uh, because she never forgot her feminine side. And so over the years, uh, we really became friends. You mentioned your relationship with Robert Johnson, who founded BET. Right. And this is complicated. It's almost as though I'm not sure what question to ask you first. You had a relationship with him. He brought you on to BET and eventually ended up in a place where you were revealing how much that relationship involved sexual harassment. Right. How do you see this relationship now, looking back at someone who was at sometimes a mentor, sometimes an advocate, and sometimes someone who was literally holding you back, not only in business, but in your personal life? 
Well, it was definitely a complicated relationship. Yeah. Uh, for the first 10 years I was at BET, Bob was nothing but a mentor. I was his general counsel. I advised him on all kinds of issues. We did many deals together. He eventually promoted me to COO. Over time, um, you know, I didn't realize this to the Time's Up campaign came out. The Me <laughs> but Too, over yeah. Time, and Time's Up was yeah, the Hollywood version, yeah. You know, over time, we, we had a romantic relationship. And then as I began to uh, manage the business more, and he turned to new ventures, there was friction on the business side. And then I think as I got my voice more and more, there were frictions on the business side and the personal side. And then that's when it became more abusive and harassment. You I know, want, let I, me stop you here for just a second, because I want to... I would imagine there's going to be some people who really relate to the story that you're telling. Right. A, a relationship yes. with a powerful man right. that changes and evolves and ends up being a detriment. When did you first realize that this man who you had loved, who had been your advocate and your fan mm -hmm. in the past, right. was not on your side? Well, I guess it became clear as we began to fight more. You know, he started trying to micromanage me a little bit more than he did early on and wanted to make more decisions. And I revolted against that because <laughs> I was the one there all the time. So I think that's when it became clear and I tried to get out of it. But as I was trying to get out of it, that's when, you know, the threats became clear about, well, if we broke up, I would have to leave the company. And again, as I heard more of the Me Too, Time's Up stories, they were very different. You know, they were um, abuse right from the beginning, and that's not my story. But because of that, I wanted young women to know it comes in different forms and looks differently. And yet, um, just to be clear for people who might still be wondering, how was this consensual relationship then become a Me mm -hmm. Too movement. Robert Johnson always had the power right. <laughs> and he was always willing to use it to manipulate you or try to influence your behavior. Mm -hmm. And as long as you were doing right. what he wanted you to do, it was fine. It was fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> but as the reason that this is about uh, Me Too or Time's Up is because the mm -hmm. power differential did not only exist, but it was enforced. Right. Is that fair? Very fair and very true. When I made the decision that the relationship was over, I should have been able to leave and not have my career hung over my head and say, yeah. well, if you break up with me tonight, you have to leave the company tomorrow. There's no grace period. There's no nice exit. I'm not going to provide a reference for you because you worked for me for 20 years. You know, your career is over, not only at BET, but anywhere else you want to go. Yeah, that just... You know, and I wanted to be CEO. I've been trained to be CEO. I was doing most of the work as COO. And to have it snatched away because of a personal relationship or, or the threat of ending a personal relationship... That's the definition of sexual harassment. And no woman or man should have to go through that. No argument here. Um, I want to get to another great story in your book, which is you talk about the memorial event for Michael Jackson at the 2009 BET Awards, which were held shortly after his death. And host Jamie Foxx did the moonwalk. 
explain why that was a moment that really helped you define not only the CEO that you were, but the kind of CEO you wanted to be. Can you explain? We had decided as a management team and with the help of a consultant in my leadership that we wanted BET to stand for respect, reflect, and elevate. So the issue with Chris Brown was, should I let him perform a week after he admitted to guilt for assaulting Rihanna without having paid his debt to society or done any community service? And what does that say to young girls or young boys? And some people made the argument, well, he's like a member of the family. We should take care of him. You know, everybody makes mistakes. But, you know, as I went through it, I finally made the decision, no, he's not going to perform because he hasn't paid his debt yet. So that was a very hard decision to make because his record label was upset. You know, his family was upset. A lot of people were upset. And, you know, back to that good girl thing, you never really want to upset people. But sometimes you have to. So that really... um, clarified for me that the ultimate decision was always going to be on my shoulder and I was going to get the criticism or the praise. So it might as well be my decision. Former BET CEO Deborah Lee's book is I Am Deborah Lee. Thank you so much. Thank you, Celeste. It's great talking to you. to hereandnow.org to see an excerpt from Deborah Lee's memoir. And while you're there, check out our other stories. Today, what's in a new international agreement that promises to protect nearly a third of the world's oceans? The ocean is undergoing a series of threats due to human activities, climate change, and the world community has come together finally to take matters under control and lay out a plan to protect vast swaths of the areas beyond national jurisdictions. You can hear that whole conversation at hereandnow.org. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Koyani Saxena, Jill Ryan, and Emiko Tamagawa. Todd Munt and Gabe Bullard edited today's show. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Patrick O'Connor. Theme music by me, Mike, and Max Liebman. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.